one of the founding members of the Postgraduate Economic Society, lasted in Manchester, I think in 2011, that's a bit of a while ago now, and um, I now, and this was a campaign to try and change how economists are educated, to try and change the content of economics degrees, and yeah, as was mentioned, I now work for a charity that came from this, but I'll get on to that later. So, the plan for the talk, I'm going to first talk about why economics is important, I'm going to talk about the history of the discipline and what it has now become and why it has important ramifications on society because obviously it's a bit of a niche campaign, economists educate, like, why does that matter? And then I'm going to talk about where students come in and why students have a unique position to change this and so why they are necessary. I'm going to talk about the tools we've used and successes and the limitations of those. And then I'm going to conclude talking about the possible limits of student action and are there institutions, in this case the institution of modern mainstream economics, that are too big to fail. So. <laughs> Why is economics important? So this is a quote from John Maynard Keynes, who was also a great economist. The ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more po powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually slaves of some defunct economist. So, quite a grand claim. So, but even if we think Keynes is perhaps exaggerating a little bit, there are examples throughout the history of economics that show it's changed the world. So this is usually seen starting in 1776 with Adam Smith, who of course was one of the first people to really document and describe the capitalist system as we know it. And Smith changed our whole conception of how we greed and competition and actually saw it as a very beneficial thing that then of course changed society by making those ideas kind of acceptable. We then move on to Ricardo, who has kind of followed Smith, and his idea of comparative advantage is still used to justify free trade to this day. You'll see it in lots of articles about economics, and this is an idea that was created way back in the 19th century. Really interesting, I think it's a great story, is Ricardo, who was obviously actually a great fan of capitalism, inadvertently inspired Karl Marx, because it was his treatment of something called the labour theory of value, which basically said that all value derives from the labour power, that actually inspired Marx that capitalism was oppressing people, and inspired him to write Das Kapital, which then, of course change the world for better or worse, depending on your views of Karl Marx. Um, the post-World War II consensus was like based on Keynesian economics, creation of the welfare state, and a pertinent example recently has been the effect of economics on finance. So, first of all, there's something which I haven't got on the slide called the efficient market hypothesis that was used to um, advocate financial regulation and was very influential before the crisis. And also there's work, the very interesting work by a guy called Donald McKenzie, who is a, I think he's an, ec an economic anthropologist at Edinburgh, who has written a book called Do Economists Create Markets? And he takes the example of derivative markets, which you may have heard of because they're a bit very big in the crisis, a kind of financial instrument. But these markets, which became so powerful, only were created after economists created the theory of how you could value them. So actually the theory brought into existence the market itself. So I think it's called performativity. And has this obviously <coughs> had huge ramifications for society later on. So why is ed economics education important now? So obviously my first quote is from Bill Clinton, it's the economy stupid. The economy is something we all know is very important, regularly tops polls the most important issue and has become even more important post-crisis. Economics graduates go on to fill top positions in society. Think tanks, government, regulating, Economists are very important and dominate our way of thinking. Uh, I put Cambridge there because the Cambridge BA Economics course has the highest market power, earning power, post-graduation of any course, any degree in the country. So that kind of shows, use that as a proxy, economists go into powerful positions. 
Moreover, it's a subject that dominates our thinking. So recently, Ed Miliband proposed a price freeze, or about a year ago now, and it was a big thing of calling it good politics and bad economics. And I thought that was a really interesting phrase, because if you replace that with any other discipline, it wouldn't really make sense. Like, good politics <laughs> and bad sociology. We'd all kind of be like, what's, what's going on here? But it's something that really, really does affect the way we think about things. And there's also been a long documented thing of economics crowding out other disciplines and encroaching onto other areas. So Ben Fine, who is an economist at SOAS and kind of a non-mainstream economist, has written a book called Economics and Periodism. It's about how economic techniques are increasingly used in politics, sociology and other disciplines. And kind of the economic toolkit is very much, um, is very, very influential within our times. However... There are very different visions of economists. So the first quote is from the eminently quotable Keynes. The master economist must possess a rare gift, combination of gifts. He must be a mathematician, historian, statesman and philosopher. So obviously Keynes had high hopes. And then the second is from Gary Becker, who is a Nobel Prize winner and very much a mainstream economist of today. The combined assumptions of maximising behaviour, stable preferences and market equilibrium <coughs> used relentlessly and unflinchingly form the heart of the economic approach as I see it which um, perhaps doesn't mean very much to you, but I'll get to that. Um, but that, so it kind of shows two very, very different visions of what we want economists to be. And one has become, the second one has become increasingly influential. So what does an undergraduate degree of economics consist of? So economics degrees are dominated pretty much entirely by something that's referred to as neoclassical economics. It's not necessarily an official term, but it kind of very much relates to Becker's definition that I just gave. So economists study very abstract models of markets. They use um, it's heavily around on mathemat mathematics. So it's very little of the real world, and we generally model agents as totally rational. There's little to no place for real-world application, ethics, history, philosophy, or social science, or crucially, other forms of economics. So this is an example from the third-year module of a top three university, which I won't quote in case I, get, I won't say who it is in case I get sued. Um, but this kind of shows the kind of thing that economics do. So you would never, in an economics degree, for instance, see a question about the housing crisis in the UK, or maybe, maybe even climate change would never come in a degree. But in a third-year uh, exam, consider an agent who made pre-order snacks online for delivery the following day. <laughs> snacks spoil and may therefore not be saved. Denote the agent's current hunger state by between zero and one, and it goes on and it goes on. And it's just... Um, well, you, I, I personally think there should be space for other, other things. Uh, this dominance led to thinking... This dominance of this form of economics led to thinking such as stuff embodied by these quotes. So Robert Lucas, another Nobel Prize winner, wrote in 2003, macroeconomics has succeeded. Its central problem of depression prevention has been solved for all practical purposes and has in fact been solved for many decades. <laughs> Olivia Blanchard, head of the IMF, uh, chief economist of the IMF, wrote in 2008, so as the crisis was unfolding, the state of macro is good. And this all kind of fit into economic vision of something called the Great Moderation, which was this period in the 90s onward of um, high growth and low inflation, and which economists took very much personal credit for, because they thought their theories had influenced the way we do policy and were very proud of themselves. However, it then led to the crisis, and everyone <coughs> became a bit more modest. And so I think it was summed up quite nice by Paul Krugman, who is actually a very mainstream economist, but did kind of reflect on the problems within it, who said, the economics profession went astray because economists as a group mistook beauty clad in impressive looking mathematics for truth. So, what do we need in economics, and what do we campaign for the post-economic society? Well, it's the things I listed that we're missing. Real-world application, like, there should be a focus on actually empirics, students currently are only kind of exposed to um, the abstract formulations that I showed you a minute ago. Ethics, eco economists learn a very dodgy form of economics called Pareto optimality, which I won't get into, it's technical. History, there's very little focus on history. You probably get graduates who have never maybe studied the Great Depression, might not even know about it, or other huge events within 
um, our discipline, the history of economics itself, because I think economics ideas that I showed you are very powerful and they come from a certain political and so social um, angle. And so if you know about where your theory came from, you start to understand the limitations of it. And, you, um, and crucially, other, well, first of all, and crucially, other forms of economics. So neoclassical economics takes kind of individual agents, mathematical agents, and uses a very, very particular kind of maths. I'm not actually anti-maths, but it uses a very particular kind of maths to model the economy, and it kind of presents the economy as a st stable, smooth, beautiful thing that we can manipulate. And actually, other forms of economics excluded, such as Austrian economics, Marxist Marx economics, post-Keynesian economics, lots of other types of economics exist that are totally uh, disregarded. So, yeah, why do we need pluralism? So I'm not denying that mainstream economics has important elements. That's a crucial part of my, the campaign that I'm part of. However, the monopoly led to the hubris shown in those quotes. Economists failed to predict the financial crisis or warn about debt. It wasn't really seen as an important thing by them. They didn't really take account of it in their framework. And this is kind of exemplified the problem, problem with the dominance of one form of economics. It's exemplified by a man called Minsky. So Heinrich Minsky was an economist writing in the 80s. And he focused on financial instability. And he talked about how financial systems, if left unregulated, can create chaos. And is now kind of widely regarded as being one of the great, great theorists of financial crises. And lots of mainstream economists have now gone back to Minsky. And Minsky's kind of been held as this great thinker. However, he was a post-Keynesian economist, one of the forms that is totally neglected. He would never have been published in a top journal article. He never would have got any attention. It's only now we're starting to see that. Moreover, the problems existed even if the crisis didn't occur. Economics degrees give no imagination, no critical thinking, and as so many of the problems in the world are economic, we want our graduates to actually be thinking about these things from a wide perspective. So, I don't know how long I have, but uh, I'll try and keep going fast. So, role students. So, we have here a picture of students. Don't go any faster. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I have a habit of that. Is, is it still not gibberish? I hope not. Um, so, role students. So, we have pictures here of uh, people in grey-looking Glasgow and sunny-looking London, I think. So, but this is student, where the students come in. Um, so, who will tell the emperor he has no clothes? Is the question. So, why student opposition is necessary? So, economics education, I think, in some sense, should be seen as a public good, due to the fact that it has ramifications for society. We rely on economists to design policies to keep our economy going, and when it goes wrong, we see the consequences as a public. Yeah, it's very difficult for the public to engage with it as a discipline because it's very technical and economists don't exactly help. So this is a response from a former Bank of England economist in response to our campaign and to some kind of things we wanted economists to learn. So he said, I would instead of what they devote time to, I would devote time to discussing rational expectations, monetary overlapping generation models of fiat money in which one can see that money acts like a bubble and which serves to explain in the purest sense what a bubble can mean of the kind recounted in the famous conference volume edited by Karenkin and Wallace. <coughs> so I'm sure you've all heard of it. Um, so therefore, keep calm and avoid jargon is my message to economists, but they're not very good at that. So, students can engage because, first of all, students are not yet fully indoctrinated into this form of economics. So you have academics who have been learning this form of economics their entire life, they publish in it, they know no other way, and now they kind of have to reassess, but they don't want to because there's obviously massive incentives for them to keep claiming that their form of economics is the way to go. Moreover, there are institutional factors that stop the discipline from radically abhorring itself, so the REF and the REA massively affect how lecturers are hired, um, how promotions are done, and of course these journals are edited by people who are brought up in the tradition of economics, so therefore it kind of renews itself. Young lecturers have to publish in them to get ahead, and it goes on and on. It links to Thomas Kuhn's idea of a paradigm shift, like sciences often find it very hard to suddenly overhaul themselves because of all these institutional things that exist. 
Our campaign, obviously, it's a very pupil versus expert dynamic, which I think is very interesting. So, the way I view it as, I cannot definitively say that this form of economics is totally wrong, because economists will always say, well, you've only done that undergrad. You haven't studied a PhD, if you got there, you've realised it's all great. It's fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. However, I can point in the circumstance to suggest there is a problem, and moreover, I can definitively say that it doesn't help me to understand the real world at this level, and that is clearly important. We want people who finish a BA in economics to know something about the economy. So, the actions of students. I should say two options. It had three A, and then I changed the order. <laughs> so, two <laughs> options. Self-education and curriculum reform campaigning. And both can happen on a local, national and international scale. So now I'm going to talk a bit about some examples from my campaign. So, self-education. This can be done on local, national and international level on way of podcasts, and obviously the internet has given that as that option. But also, we had a very interesting example at Manchester when we tried to run a module on alternative economics called Bubbles, Panics and Crashes. This was run by a lecturer who had a PhD from Manchester in mainstream economics and actually agreed with us and didn't think this one of economics was that useful. So he ran a class out of hours, we got 60... Oh, maybe it's how fast I was speaking. Okay, oh, cool. Um, bubbles, pants, crashes. So, about 60 students signed up for this course and did it totally out of hours. Obviously, I think you can, um, can you know how much of a commitment that is when you have a lot of them are third years. Um, and we did this course and it was very popular. And we actually asked the university to put this on as an accredited module. Um, we ran a campaign, we got a third of economic students to sign asking for it. And what actually happened is they, for a long time, said, yep, yeah, we're going to do it. Then they cancelled it at the last moment, and the lecturer's contract was not renewed. Obviously, they said it wasn't because of that. I would argue that it probably was. So this shows the limitations to the model. There's risk for lecturers, and students only have a limited time for outside study. And it, you can't really reach enough people. There are lots of economic students who would not be able to do this if they don't have the time. We need it in the curriculum. So that leads us onto a second option. Oh, and these were some of the headlines... We've, yeah, we've been covered like lots in the press, The Guardian, Financial Times, Independent, and around the world. Um, and so some of the headlines when the Bubbles course was cancelled, which was really great to see, because it um, got our lecture the attention he deserved. I think he did a really, very brave thing. Um, quick reform. On a local level, Bubble shows it's very difficult. These institutions, they are part of a framework that keeps them in this way. So yeah, the ref, as I talked about, and there's no real incentive for one institution to change. Bubbles for an example where we had huge public pressure, where we had huge pressure from students and also a lot of bad press for the university were regularly in the media and they were still able to reject it and so it shows it's very hard to change. On the national and international level, which is perhaps from the higher, so that suggests maybe you need to go from a higher level. However, there's a really interesting case here which shows how powerful institutions can kind of corrupt student movements and try and take them over. So there's this thing in economics called the Institute for New Economic Thinking. It's a fund started by George Soros and I think two other very rich people who basically each put like 50 million quid in to create this thing that, cam that campaigns for new ways of economic thinking post-financial crisis. And in many ways it's a really great organisation. Uh, like, we've got some funding from it in the past. However, they put together this curriculum called CORE that basically tried to, cause tried to claim that, okay, economics is in a bad way, but we're going to solve it. So they basically developed this new curriculum with a lot of money behind it and advocated universities um, take it up as kind of a solution to the problem we raised. However, all the student groups rejected the core curriculum. I recently wrote a review of it for the Royal Economic Society, and it's basically just mainstream economics in a very nice new facade, uh, new package, and it doesn't really change anything. And all student groups have rejected it, yet core are able to kind of suggest they're solving the problem, and it's now being adopted at several universities. 
curriculum reform, we need new ideas, and so that's something I'll come to later. But basically, this is something I think what we've learned is this campaign has gained a lot of traction and got a lot of attention, but hasn't hasn't changed what we want to so far. So we kind of need to keep going. I think about reassess tools we have used. So petitions. Um, these can be very useful in the short term, I find. So. I think for the Bubbles module, that petition had a third of all students was a very powerful thing. However, we also launched a more general petition calling for change, and that has become decreasingly useless over time as the students who signed it then leave, and it's hard to keep up the momentum to keep going. Someone else say about social media and how that can help you move. I think Isipe is the most amazing example. I, I think this was an incredible thing. It wasn't actually I was a big part of, but it was kind of all the groups. So Isipe stands for the International Student Initiative for Purism Economics and this was signed by 65 groups from 30 countries all over the world and it was a petition called Purism. However, it wasn't this petition written by one person. This was a petition uploaded onto a Google Doc that was written in English, very impressive for people from outside England, but was literally written on a Google Doc and updated by 65 different groups around the world live. And they managed to come together and make a document that made perfect sense, all having input, giving comments, going back and forth, which I think was a really incredible thing. And that made headlines around the world, the Monde, New York Times, lots of German papers, lots of English newspapers. And that was really good for uniting the student movement. The media has been great for giving us public attention. It scares departments about their public image and so perhaps does bring about some reform. There has been limited reforms at Manchester. And also, I think what we've learned from it is the importance of a narrative. So I think post-crash, I think, is a really good name we kind of stumbled upon. But I think it kind of embodies something that people are very visceral about and kind of takes it away from this dry conversation about academic economics and shows like porn. Um, the negatives can be misrepresented or understandably simplify the debate because journalists can't really go into the details of academic economics. And also it can alienate economists and kind of create an us versus them. So I, I give a couple of examples here. So the first example shows problem with the media. So this refers to the core project that I just mentioned, universities to revamp economics courses. And this kind of article by Claire Jones is actually a really great journalist who's helped us a lot, kind of thought that core was a solution and kind of presented that as an image to the public when actually all the students groups have rejected it. But obviously journalists, because they're not part of the movement, don't know that and so can lead to your message going astray. And the, the second one is an article published in The Guardian that actually kind of set our campaign going and got over... 20,000 shares, but um, and the first major economics is specifically free market, and that's a very interesting question about how, what the kind of political, the political position of uh, mainstream economics, and it's quite a nuanced point, and it's not, and this kind of thing creates kind of an us versus them mentality that then means economists don't really like us, and actually we do need to engage with economists if we want them to kind of agree to change. Um, the final tool we've used I'm going to talk about is the NSS. Which I was particularly controversial, which I thought was really interesting. So we were criticised by our department for using it strategically. And so basically, after Bubbles was kind of... When they stopped saying, oh, Bubbles is definitely going to run, we posted a message on our Facebook page saying, the department is deciding whether to run this. We, uh, we, I don't know what word we used, something quite nice and politically... Uh, something nice and sensible. We kind of ask you to consider whether you should wait to put out the NSS until after they've made a decision on this. And they said this was an unfair strategic use of it. <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, in every lecture I attend, I have a lecturer at the front telling me why I should give them a good score on what they've done for me and why I should immediately go and yeah, go give them a five-star review. So I just don't really see it. And so I think this really comes down to what we want the NSS to be and how do we want it to be used. So do we want it to be a call for comfy sofas or a section on our education? I actually wrote some notes about this. 
Um, yeah, and it kind of goes very into the wider politics of higher education. So are we at consumers who kind of just give like a tiny little review, or are we at active participants who are able to change and shape our education? And does marketization really mean a bigger role, or does it kind of mean the illusion of a bigger role? Because the NSS comes at the end of a degree, you're not going to be at the institution after that, it doesn't affect you yourself, and moreover, there's a lot of pressure often put in explicit terms about how if you damage your university reputation, your degree is worthless. So there's an incentive, even if you hated your degree, to give it a good score. And I know many people who did that. That's a yeah, serious issue. So, conclusion. Is economics too big to fail? Reasons to be pessimistic. The case of bubbles and panics and crashes, which showed concerted effort that actually, sadly, there's no form and our department became less pluralistic. The one, the one, one of the few lecturers who was open in support of us left. The adoption of court at several universities, including Bristol and UCL. Moreover, some institutional factors are very difficult for us to affect, like the REA and the REF, and this is something we're now doing more research into, but it is something that kind of entrenches a paradigm is very hard to break out of. And finally, as the financial crisis fades in memory, will people stop challenging the orthodoxy? Reasons to be optimistic. A movement growing ever larger. So yeah, we now are, I think, pretty much on every continent in the globe. And yeah, 30 countries around the world, getting bigger every time. There are conferences in New York, Brazil. It's a really, really growing movement. Moreover, funding makes campaigning, e campaigning easier and turnover less of an issue. So one of the things we were scared of is like when me and the other founders were going to leave, were they going to be the second years and thirties able to take over? And are students generally going to have the time to set up these societies? Because it's a quite a big commitment. However, we now receive funding from Friends Providence Foundation, um, which has given us two years of funding to fund like four or five staff. And so this is going to kind of lead to the movement going bigger and bigger. Moreover, alternative curriculums already exist, and maybe through market power, students will show their preference for that. So there are um, more, less mainstream departments and more pluralistic departments at SOAS, Kingston, SOAS and Kingston, to name two of them. Problem is, these universities then have lower rankings in economics because of the research they publish. However, if students, find it, if students show their support for it, maybe that will lead to change. Moreover, there's the possibility for a new core, Robert Skodelsky, who many of you may have heard of. He's a biographer of Keynes, and obviously he's also in the House of Lords. Um, he is being commissioned, possibly being commissioned to do a new core project that will be funded by INET that will be an alternative syllabus, and that what we've seen so far, student groups are much more happy with. And finally, on the last post, I said maybe the crisis will be forgotten. However, it does feel like we're kind of a part of a post-crash generation. Like the, we're return, technically, we're back to economic success, we're returning to growth, and yet I don't think many people really feel it. And I think the crisis has kind of left an indelible impression on us that will not quickly be forgotten. So, oh, and the last point, plugging. So, new directions for the movement. So, a big thing we're interested in now is in public education. So, a lot of people who kind of started this campaign are also really interested in the ties between economic education and democracy. So, politics is increasingly debated on economic terms, and yet, I have a sense that no one really understands what's going on. So we're doing a lot of research into that. So we're doing a series of polls with YouGov to see what level of economics knowledge there is in the country and whether actually kind of we're all pretending we understand the stuff but don't. And we're also trying to break down barriers. So we're running a conference in April, uh, this end of March, beginning of April, which has speakers like Martin Wolf, who's the Chief Economist of the Financial Times, Paul Mason, um, lots of great economists, but also... Not just the people who know about economics, we're going to be running crash courses in citizens' economics, which tries to give people the education they need to engage with debates. And we also do publications. So we published a report last year with a forward from the chief economist by the Bank of England, who's called Andrew Haldane, who's a very interesting 
um, earn, and that got 15,000 downloads, which tried to kind of taught it, taught, taught, um, the report went through our education, like every module, and like what we learned, and why that was problematic. And also, I am currently writing with two other people a book that will be published by Manchester University Press in hopefully September. So look out for that. Thank you. All right. Thank you.